Well, we've arrived at the end of the book of Galatians. By God's grace, we've made it all the way through these six chapters. We'll look at the last uh, two paragraphs uh, of the book today. And before we jump into Galatians, I want to give you a little overview of what comes next. A few people have asked me. Uh, here, here is the plan. For the next three Sundays after today, um, we're, we'll be uh, hearing from Greg Fields and Jason Brown, other faithful members in our church who will be uh, preaching God's word to us. Uh, it'll, they'll sort of springboard from uh, Galatians 5.22, the passage about the fruit of the Spirit, and looking at the, the, the life of the Spirit of God among the community of God's people in a little bit more depth. Um, I believe we're calling that series A Community Garden. And so the next three Sundays after today, that'll be uh, what, we're, what we're considering together from God's Word. Uh, on October 30th, uh, Lord willing, I'll begin a, a four-week series on stewardship, not just financial stewardship, but how we steward all of the lives and resources that God has given to us, uh, and we'll be exploring together Matthew 6, verses 19 through 34. That'll take four Sundays, and that'll take us right up to Advent. So then we'll have uh, the four Sundays of Advent. I haven't quite decided exactly what I'll be preaching on those Sundays, but it'll be an Advent-themed uh, series. And then Christmas Day is a Sunday morning this year, so we'll uh, have the opportunity to gather and sing uh, his praise uh, on Christmas Day. So that's the plan through the rest of this year, just to give you a little bit of a snapshot of where we're headed. But today, the final two paragraphs of Paul's letter to the Galatians. The first four chapters uh, comprise the bulk of Paul's message here. That our relationship with God is on the basis of faith, not on the basis of works of the law. False teachers in uh, Galatia have been pressuring the Gentile Christians there uh, to live like Jews, receiving circumcision, following the Jewish dietary laws, etc. Uh, and Paul is clear, these false teachers are to be rejected. And the Galatians are to be reminded that they are safe and secure in God's forever family by his sheer grace toward them in Jesus Christ. And so that's been the tone and the bulk of the content of these messages uh, throughout the series. Then in chapter 5, he starts getting pretty practical. How does this faith work its way out into our lives? And specifically, in our churches, in the community of faith. And so we reflected two weeks ago on the fruit of the Spirit, the life of the Spirit of God among his people, reflected in the quality of love among the community. And last week we spoke of the responsibility of Christians to be our brother's keeper, that is to bear one another's burdens, to assist one another, help one another in the pursuit of God and uh, carrying through this life. And so we're down to the final two paragraphs, which contain two closing exhortations. So here's the main idea in two points, and then we'll walk through them together. We get it from this passage two challenges for faithful Christian living. In the light of all that is true, in the light of this gospel, in the light of the fact that we stand secure before God because of faith in Christ, two challenges for living faithfully. Number one, press on to eternal life. And number two, zoom in on the cross of Christ. Press on to eternal life and zoom in on the cross of Christ. And we'll look at those one at a time as we go. If I were responsible to, to divide up the text of Galatians into paragraphs, like if I had been tasked with where the verses are drawn and all that sort of stuff, I probably would keep verse 6 with verses 1 through 5, 
So perhaps if I were to re-preach this, I probably would include verse 6 in the paragraph we looked at last week. Uh, it, It really is kind of one more of these burdens to bear, one more way that we help one another bear each other's burdens in the church, and then he kind of launches into what I think of as a new section. So let's look at verse 6 kind of on its own, considering that it belongs to the bearing one another's burdens passage, uh, and then we'll look at those two uh, main uh, or or final exhortations for Christian living. Um, So verse 6, he's just told us that we need to bear one another's burdens and take responsibility for ourselves, recognizing we will stand before God on the judgment day. Verse 6 says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. The one who is taught the word, that is, those in the church who sit under the teaching and preaching of God's word. So let those who are receiving teaching and instruction from God's word share all good things with the one who teaches. The sharing of good things is a sharing of of resources. God has given pastors and teachers and leaders to his church to instruct them in his word. And he charges his people to share all good things with them. That is to materially and financially meet their needs so that these teachers can be freed up to do the work of ministry, to do the work of studying and teaching and proclaiming the word of God to to his people without worrying about those kind of material and, and financial aspects of his life. And I think in that arrangement, there's a, there's a mutual burden bearing that goes on. I think it's God's wisdom to set things up like this because there's a mutual bearing of burdens. On the one hand, the congregation bears the burdens of their teacher by relieving him of the pressure and responsibility to come up with a way to make a living. So I'm going to spend the time and energy and heart that I need to to rightly divide the word of truth and to deliver God's word faithfully and clearly and give instruction in God's word. That's going to take a lot of time. And so the church providing the financial and material needs of the one delivering the the word of God to them is a way of bearing that burden on his behalf. And so the congregation bears the burden of the teacher by taking off, if you will, the pressure and responsibility of coming up with some way to make a living. And conversely, on the other side, the teacher bears the burdens of the congregation by protecting them from false doctrine and by helping them to remain faithful to Christ and his word. And so there is a shared benefit, a shared bearing of burdens here. In other words, the church helps take care of his physical and material needs in return for him helping take care of their spiritual needs. That's sort of the way that, that it goes. And so uh, that's a, a clear biblical model, and there's other passages that, that exhort the church in the same sort of way. But this is an arrangement that God intends for churches to use for the sake of bearing one another's burdens. Just yet another expression of how in this journey of the Christian life, we in the church help one another to carry the load that we've been given to carry. Now, on to the meat of this paragraph, Paul's two closing exhortations. Number one, press on to eternal life. I'm going to read for you verses 7 through 10. Just those four verses, and we'll talk about those together. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. 
For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. This is an expression of a principle that is seen throughout the scriptures, and it is a universal principle. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Obviously an agrarian metaphor of sowing seeds and reaping a harvest, common in the Bible. Whatever he sows, that will he reap. No one lives beyond this rule. No one escapes this principle. God set the world up to work this way. Whatever you sow, that will you reap. Now, I want to make a little side note here that this is not the same thing as karma. Sometimes people speak of this principle and use the word karma, like you get what you deserve. Karma is actually a particular, it's a concept associated with Indian religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, and it's closely connected with the doctrine of reincarnation. That is that when we die, we are kind of constantly reborn in different forms. And karma is the, not just principle, but the sort of force that determines what kind of rebirth we'll have. So if you have good karma, that is if you've sown well, then you'll have a, an honorable or a favorable rebirth. And if you sow poorly, you have bad karma, then your rebirth will be something disgraceful or less favorable. That's the way that karma works its way out in, in those systems of belief. So this is not the same thing, but even the false doctrine of karma and reincarnation is based on a universal principle that God has written into the universe. Namely, whatever you sow, you will reap. That is the way that God has set the world up to work. Why does he tell us not to be deceived? He says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Why would we be deceived into thinking that that isn't true? I think the reason for that is it doesn't always look like it. It doesn't always look like this is the case in this life, does it? There are times, there are people, there are seasons where it seems like the powerful and the wealthy and the people who have everything they want are the people who are living in utter rebellion to God and his ways. It looks as though they're sowing wickedness and reaping all the great things they want, power and prestige and, and popularity. They're living it up and everyone loves them, wants to be them. And there are others who are sowing seeds of righteousness and patience and discipline and prayer and faith, but whose lives are marked not by ease but by hardship, not by wealth but by poverty, not by popularity but by persecution. This seems indeed frequently to be the case among God's people. Those who are faithful to God and his word are often the victims of persecution and oppression and hatred. And so we might be inclined to think, 
I guess that's not true. I guess whatever you sow, that will you reap, just isn't always the case. Or maybe there are some people who sort of escape God's notice. Maybe there are wicked people who are living it up who somehow got away with it. And maybe there are other righteous people, faithful people of God who are praying and and following his, his word who are persecuted and maybe God just sort of missed them. He overlooked them. He intended to apply this principle, but he just missed them. They somehow escaped God's notice. We may be inclined to believe that's the case. Do some people just escape the boundaries of this sowing and reaping principle? No. God is not mocked. God is not tricked. You can't skirt around God with reckless living and somehow escape his notice. Things don't just fall through the cracks for God. So even while it may look for a season like reaping and sowing is not true, God is not mocked. Some of you need to hear this today as a warning There's probably someone in this room who is flirting with sin, dabbling with immorality, and you think you're getting away with it. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, that will you also reap. If that's you, repent. Return. Humble yourself before God. Get honest with him about your sin. Come to him in faith. You will not trick God. You will not escape his righteous judgment. Whatever you sow, that will you reap. Some of you, though, need to hear this as comfort. Some of you have sown seeds of patience and faith, seeds of love and faithfulness, but you seem to be reaping bitterness and sorrow. I've sown seeds of bringing my child up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and I've reaped a child who's grown up and hates God and wants nothing to do with the church. I've sown seeds of faith and courage, but what I've reaped is disrespect and disdain from others. I'm an outcast at work. I'm a black sheep in my family. This doesn't seem right. Hear this word of encouragement. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. You won't be overlooked. Your righteousness will be vindicated. God doesn't miss things. Nobody slips through the cracks. Nobody gets away with anything. Nobody misses out on blessings of God's reward that he intends to give. So what? What do we do with this? Knowing that this principle is true, even while maybe it doesn't seem like it in seasons of time in this fallen world, what do we do with it? Well, don't grow weary of doing good. That's what he says next. Let us not grow weary of doing good. This is hard, right? It's it's hard to do good. It's hard to speak truth. It's hard to be at odds with virtually everyone in your family or your workplace or your culture. But we know that we reap whatever we sow, and so we know 
that ultimately it's worth it. We have to be exhorted not to grow weary because it is exhausting. Doing good faithfully, patiently, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year is tiring. It would be so much easier, wouldn't it, if we could just live by the flesh and forget all of this stuff. Do whatever you want, see what happens. So much easier. It's hard to live faithfully under Christ. And so he calls us, don't grow weary, don't get tired, keep moving. It's going to be worth it. It's worth it to keep believing. It's worth it to keep loving people. It's worth it to keep speaking the truth of Christ's gospel. It's worth it to keep praying. It's worth it to keep showing up to worship with the saints. It's worship to keep listening to and obeying God's word. Because if the seeds we sow are righteousness and love, then the harvest we will reap is life and joy forever. That is true even when it doesn't feel true. This is the way God has made the universe to operate. And he tells us specifically what we'll reap in verse 8. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Again, remember that flesh in this context is that sinful, fallen human nature. The sinful desires that cling to us. If we sow to the flesh, we will from the flesh reap corruption, decay, destruction. But the one who sows to the Spirit... All that stuff about the fruit of the Spirit, the life of the Spirit among God's people. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. You sow to the Spirit, you reap eternal life. The question here is what kind of seed are you planting? You will reap whatever you sow. If not in this life to our limited understanding, certainly in the life to come. What kind of seed are you planting? That's the kind of tree you're going to get. If you plant an apple seed, you grow an apple tree. If you plant seeds of flesh, you grow death. If you plant seeds of the spirit, you yield eternal life. This is the way that it works. And so he has us looking beyond the horizon of what we see in this temporal life and from our limited vantage point. He calls us to look to a day, a kingdom, a new creation. He's going to mention that in the later verses here. Where there will be no confusion. There will be no discrepancy between what somebody sowed and what somebody has reaped. There will be no wicked in the kingdom of God. Read the book of Revelation. The wicked are outside the gates of the city. There will be no one who is righteous in the kingdom of God who doesn't receive the full reward that God has promised. You will reap whatever you sow. And so, therefore, in light of that, verse 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Don't grow weary of doing good. 
Don't grow weary of loving your neighbor. Don't grow weary of forgiving your brother or sister who sinned against you. Don't grow weary of going time and time again to God's word, of going to God himself in prayer. Don't grow weary of meeting the needs of those around you. Every act of kingdom love will be rewarded in the fruit of the kingdom that's to come. Don't grow weary of doing good. We will reap. It will come. Be sure of that. God is not mocked. So then, the final exhortation in uh, this section, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. He groups people off here, those who belong to Christ and his church, and those who are on the outside of his church. And he doesn't say, don't worry about the people who are outside the church, just take care of yourselves. He says, do good to everyone. We are called to bring light and love and help and witness and compassion to those around us who are outside of Christ, but who need a healing hand, who need a word of grace, who need a friend. We are to do good to those around us, to everyone. And there is a priority of taking care of those within the family of God, especially, he says, to those who are of the household of faith. As those who belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, we are to prioritize loving and caring for and meeting needs for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Don't grow weary of doing good. To everyone, yes, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. There's a a verse, one of my favorite verses at the end of, toward the end of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Paul says something very similar to this. He's just spoken about the resurrection that's to come and the eternal life we know that we will reap. The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There is no good that you will do in the name of the risen Lord Jesus that is wasted. There is no goodness, kindness, faithfulness, patience, gentleness, love, joy that you can share with others that will not yield reward, that will not bear fruit in the kingdom of God. We know that our labor is not in vain. We will reap if we don't give up. So the first exhortation, the first challenge to live a faithful Christian life is simply press on toward eternity. With eternity in your mind, with the coming kingdom in view, Live your life here, spend yourself for the good of others, knowing you will reap in due time if you don't give up. Press on toward eternal life. The last paragraph, 
verses 11 through 18, I'll read for you now. And we're going to find there an exhortation that I'm summarizing as this. Zoom in on the cross of Christ. Zoom in on the cross of Christ. Begin reading in verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would, be, who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Paul includes in this last paragraph a, a final warning of sorts, a reminder of what he's already told them over and over again concerning circumcision and the law and the motives of these false teachers. You'll notice that he begins in verse 11 by saying, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So Paul has apparently been dictating this letter to a secretary. The fancy word is amanuensis, so you can tell somebody you learned something today. Uh, so he's been dictating this letter to somebody who's written it all out for him. But when he comes to this, when he comes to the sort of final exhortation and greeting, he wants to write it himself. And we've observed elsewhere and earlier in Galatians that perhaps Paul has a problem with his eyes and he can't see very well. So when he writes, he writes with really big letters. So he says, look at how large letters I'm writing to you from my own hand. And so it's, it's a mark of his sincerity of heart toward them and a mark of the credibility of his message, right? The authenticity of his message. This letter clearly comes from me. Here is my own signature on it, if you will. And so then he warns them yet again about uh, these false teachers in Galatia who are not seeking the good of the Galatian believers. He says they're not, they're not trying to get you to be circumcised because they think it's good for you. They're trying to get you to be circumcised because they think they'll gain by it. There's some way in which they will be able to boast in your flesh, perhaps because, hey, look what we got them to do or what we convinced them of. He says uh, that they're looking to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. So if we can just say, oh, well, we, we just all go along to get along. We just do the law, do the things that Jews do, then nobody can, can raise a stink. So he says their motives in what they're trying to get you to do are not pure. Their teaching is wrong and their motives are bad. They're in it for themselves and their own gain, their own boasting, not for you. Their message and ministry are at your expense for their own gain. So he reminds them of that reality. He says, and they don't even keep the law themselves. Those who are circumcised don't themselves keep the law. So they're, they're hypocrites. They're telling you you've got to keep the law, but they themselves aren't even really keeping the law. They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And that becomes the, the turning point, the hinge upon which he, he changes his message here from thinking about the false teachers and their bad motives to a reminder of what a faithful follower of Jesus clings to. He says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Christ. So far from something to reject or fear, 
like these false teachers, they want to avoid being persecuted for the sake of the cross. Far from something to be rejected or feared, the cross of Christ is the sole cause of glory, joy, and boasting for the true Christian. The cross should be at the center of the life and vision of a follower of Jesus. He speaks again of his identification, his union with Christ here, where he says, uh, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which, that is the cross, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It reminds us of what he said back in Galatians 2, verse 20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, right? I am crucified with Christ. He is living his life through me. So closely united with Christ is the Christian that it's as though he was crucified when Christ was crucified. And so the world, with all of its systems and beliefs and values and structures, holds no appeal to Paul. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I don't have any use for the world. The world doesn't have any use for me. That's kind of the attitude here. The Christian whose eyes are on the cross of Jesus Christ and aware of his union with Christ through his sacrifice on the cross does not worry about the things of the world, does not take up his life and his emotions and his considerations and give all of his sort of anxious toil toward the things of the world. The ones who look like they're sowing wickedness but reaping all of this popularity and prestige and power, he says, who cares? I don't need power. I don't need popularity. I don't need prestige. I don't need to fit in with them. I've been crucified to all that. It doesn't matter. The cross of Jesus Christ should be the central focal point of the life of a follower of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul speaks of this new cross-shaped life. I'm in 1 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, where are we at? There we go. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Those who are in Christ are part of something new and different and lasting. And the old has passed away. Yes, the flesh and its desires and its clinging and all those things, but also our very interest in and desire for the things of the world. It's passed away. This world system is passing away and we are no longer a part of it. Why is that true? How could that be true? He says down in verse 21, for our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Christian is to be singularly focused on the cross of Christ and the new creation that it has secured. He says there in verse 15, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And this cross-focus, this 
keeping Jesus in view is actually the means to our enduring without growing weary that he just exhorted us to do. Keep going, keep working, keep doing good. You will reap in due time. The fuel for that is keeping Jesus in our view. In Hebrews 12, verse 3, we're told, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. How do we keep from growing weary? Keep your eyes on Christ. Look more at him than at yourself. Be more aware of his grace than of your brokenness. Be more aware of his provision in the cross than the burdens and brokenness and challenges in the world. Keep your eyes on Christ. The spiritual fuel to keep on doing good without growing weary is to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. To regularly reflect on his sacrifice in your place, his covering of your sin. To routinely rehearse the good news of Christ crucified for sinners. So it's fitting in this letter that is so packed with the gospel New life, eternal life for those who stop their striving to obey the law and simply rest in Jesus. It's fitting that it ends with this exhortation to just look at Jesus. Circumcision and uncircumcision doesn't matter. The law keeping, that's not what it's about. Look to Christ. So let me ask you this. What are you doing to keep the cross of Jesus in your view? What rhythms or structures in your daily, weekly life allow you to sit and to soak in the grace of God that flows to you freely, lavishly, abundantly through the death of the Lord Jesus in your place? What relationships and conversations are centering Christ crucified and the spiritual good he's purchased for you? Encouraging you to keep your steps close to his side. What adjustments, what changes could you make to your schedule? What opportunity could you say no to in order to create time and space for the Christ of Calvary to fill your mind's eye and strengthen your heart in the love of God? This is the important pursuit of a follower of Jesus classic hymn by Fanny Crosby it says near the cross O Lamb of God bring its scenes before me help me walk from day to day with its shadow o'er me in the cross in the cross be my glory ever till my ransomed soul shall find rest beyond the river let's live our lives in the shadow of the cross constantly aware of his grace poured out to us there. And that rest at the end of that hymn, till I find rest beyond the river. Rest is an appropriate upshot of this cross-centered living. Paul offers this blessing in verse 16. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. All who walk by this rule, that is the, the way of life, that's set free from slavish obedience to the law and instead delights in the grace of God in Christ purchased at the cross. So all who walk by this rule are those who are resting, trusting in Christ and his finished work. And he says, peace and mercy. Peace with God. 
mercy for our sins and failings. It is our objective inheritance in Christ. And it ought to be, increasingly, our daily experience by His Spirit. The peace of God and mercy from His hand. And then he says, may peace and mercy be upon all who walk by this rule and upon the Israel of God. And as he's told us elsewhere, Israel is not the physical descendants of Abraham, but those who share Abraham's faith, which he elaborated in chapters 3 and 4 of this book. In other words, all who walk by this rule, the Israel of God, it's you. It's the church of Jesus Christ redeemed by his blood. One final jab at the, at the false teachers here in verse 17. Let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul's suffering and persecution for the cause of Christ, the marks that he bears of his hardship that he has suffered in his ministry, should be an indicator to the Galatians of the sincerity of his heart and the authenticity of his message. And sort of one final recap of his arguments in chapters 1 and 2. Well, the message of Galatians, sinners are redeemed and made righteous, not through works of the law, but through faith in Christ. That's what Galatians is all about. Our standing before God is not a reward to be earned by our obedience, but a gift to be received by simple trust in his grace. And that's where real freedom comes from. Not freedom to sin, Freedom to live however we please and to think we can do so without any consequences. Remember, God is not mocked. No, freedom is the joy of giving up our striving, of laying down our frantic efforts to appease God or earn his favor. Freedom is the security and peace of knowing that you belong completely to God. Adopted as his sons, with all the rights and privileges that entails, and fully at home in his family, now and forever, because of his free grace in Christ. If you're not resting in that freedom today, please don't walk out of here without squaring that away right now. Grab somebody sitting near you and ask them, how can I get that kind of freedom? How can I become God's adopted child by faith? There are many in this room who would happily talk with you about that and show you the way. Galatians has two pillars, one at the beginning and one at the end, that we've got to hold on to with all our might until he has led us safely through this fallen world to our eternal rest. Back in chapter 1, verse 10, he said, if I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. I just think that is so important in the life of a follower of Jesus and in the life of a church. We've got to be those who serve Christ and not fear man. It is impossible to keep the gospel true and central and right, and it is impossible to live faithfully if we're trying to please people. If what we're concerned about is how we look to somebody else, we're not serving Christ. Galatians 1.10. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's a pillar on one side, on one end of this book. And then the pillar on the other end of this book is in Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. 
how much I wonder of the church's life and struggles and divisions and battles would be solved if we would strive not to please man but to serve Christ and if we would just simply not give up. Don't grow weary of doing good. Keep holding on. Keep moving forward. It's worth it. Keep your eyes on Jesus and just keep going. And every step of your journey all along the way, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the message that you've given us in these pages. We thank you for the grace that you've poured out on us in Christ and the exhortations to hold on, to remain faithful, to remember that we serve a Savior who gave everything for us, that we might experience the fullness and freedom of living as your sons. And we pray that more and more, day by day, that would become the reality of life that we experience. We know it's true. We know it's the, the reality. Help us to grow in our experience of it, to walk in that freedom, to live in that love, to diligently, courageously, persistently, stubbornly do good to one another, knowing that all those who are resting in Christ and walking by his Spirit will receive the reward of eternal life that you've promised. Help us to rest. Help us not to grow weary that we might walk in your light and work by your strength. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.